Before we get started tonight, let me say a prayer for us. I think our world, unfortunately, continues to experience a lot of calamities, and I know there are a lot of hurting people out there, so let's, let's pray for them. Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight, that we can reason and discuss and think about your presence in this world. And we are touched tonight by the earthquake in Mexico and the, just so many people who have died and so many others in distress. Lord, the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico today, the continuing struggles in Florida and Texas. And Lord, as we just look around the world, we see a lot of hurt, but we know that you are the hope. And we know that many who have come in your name have gone to minister, and I pray you would bless them and watch over them. I pray that your presence would be known, your healing presence, your loving presence, and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you probably know how we do things, but that number is on your handout, and if you want to text questions during class, uh, feel free to do that, and we try to answer as many of those as we can. Our lesson last time, we're going through different world religions, and a couple of sessions ago we did Islam. So this evening, we are going to talk, here's our map of religions of the world. We want to talk about Judaism. If you look at the color coding on this, you'll realize that Judaism is in blue. You see it over there on the legend, and you're looking at that map and you're saying, wow, I don't see any blue on that map. Well, if you look really, really closely, there's a little bit of blue right there because these are interesting statistics that there are 14 million, only 14 million Jews in the world of population of in excess of 7 billion. So it's a very small number of people. Of that 14 million or so, a little over 40% of them, about 6 million Jewish people, live in the modern state of Israel. Another 40 plus percent, say another 6 million of that number, live scattered through the United States and Canada. And then the remaining 2 million are in various, just scattered in small communities uh, around the world. And so we're going to talk about a world religion that based on numbers would not have made our list for this eight-week series, but based on impact is a big player and important for us to understand. And you'll see as we go through. Uh, what I'd like to do is, first of all, just give you the story of the origins and the development of Judaism from its beginnings until modern times. So needless to say, I'll kind of move through that. But I'd like you to get a sense like we did with Islam. We began with Muhammad in 570 AD, and we kind of traced the development of Islam. After that, after we talk about the story of Judaism, then we'll talk about the various, the major branches of Judaism and the, some of the major, at least, beliefs of Judaism and how that varies just a little bit. Along the way, we'll inevitably talk about interactions uh, amongst Jews and Muslims and Christians and Hindus and Buddhists around the world. By the way, today is a significant day in the Jewish calendar. Uh, at sundown today begins Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is New Year. It's the beginning of the Jewish New Year. But it's also the beginning of what are called the High Holy Days. There's a 10-day period that begins with Rosh Hashanah, New Year's Day, basically, in the Jewish calendar, and on the 10th day ends with Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And so that, during that period, there is a time of introspection and a time of examining one's life, depending on your, uh, the different branches of Judaism, different things are done there, but it ends in the Day of Atonement, a day of asking God for forgiveness and asking his blessing on your year ahead. So beginning this evening, for Jews around the world, we'll begin the High Holy Days, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, ending with Yom Kippur. So let's go back and let's talk about when did Judaism start? In your Bibles, in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, is the story of God working from creation, from Adam and Eve, and then the people populating the earth. You go through Noah and the flood, chapter 6. You move on 
to the Tower of Babel, and you get God working through humanity. And by the time you get to chapter 11, humanity is spread around the world, but there's evil in the world. In other words, the fallen nature of humanity, what I like to call that we are bent toward sin. We have a tendency toward rebellion from God and God's system. So you see that taking hold in the world. So in Genesis chapter 12, God begins to work through a specific individual with a specific plan to rescue humanity from its fallen and rebellious condition. And so, Genesis 12, we meet Abraham. Abraham is living in uh, modern-day Iraq, and God comes to him. You remember this story, so I'll move through it relatively quickly. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make three promises to you. If you trust me, I am going to make you into a great nation. In other words, your descendants will literally become a nation. I know some of you that have toddlers think, hey, talk to me about a nation. You know, I got a lot of people running around my house. Well, he's talking about, seriously, you're going to become a nation. He said, secondly, I'm going to give you a land that will be your homeland. And then thirdly, in some way you don't understand, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth, all the people of the earth through you. And he said, do you believe me? Scripture says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he had for the first person on earth at that time a right relationship with God. And he, his faith was action. He got up and he moved. And so this map shows you basically how he came to what is now the land of Israel and he settled there. Well, when he settled there, he knew he was going to have children, but he didn't for a while. But God was faithful, and he did indeed have children. He started by having a son, Ishmael, by Sarah's maidservant. We talked about this when we talked about Islam, but we might as well bring these together right now. Because Sarah thought, well, I'm not going to be able to have a child. Perhaps through my servant, Hagar, an Egyptian, we can have our line go on. That's not an unusual thing at that time, period. But God said, no, Sarah's going to have a baby. And sure enough, she did. 13 years later, when Ishmael's about 13, Isaac is born. And Isaac is the child of promise, born of Abraham and Sarah. Now, here's where our stories diverge. We looked at the left-hand route when we talked about Islam. Ishmael goes off and becomes the uh, father of 12 tribes of Arabia, he also becomes a nation because God said, I will bless him as well, but this is not my plan, but I will bless Ishmael. He will live, he'll become a father of a great nation, and he will constantly be at odds with his people, with his brother. And that's a prophecy that's turned out to be quite true. And then down through all the centuries, this is happening, Ishmael and Isaac, about 2,000 years before Christ. Muhammad, 570 years after Christ. But down through the generations, Muhammad understood he was a descendant of Ishmael looking back to Abraham, and then Islam goes off. But today, I want to take the other path. I want to talk to you about Judaism. So Isaac, and through Isaac's line of promise, eventually, in 1400 BC, you get Moses. Then in 1000 BC, you have David in that line. And then you have Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in that line of promise through Isaac, through whom the promises would, uh, would come to pass. Well, specific to the Jews and Judaism. So Abraham, the first Jew. Abraham is the first one to have this specific covenant, this chosen people uh, relationship with God. He has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Now, this looks busy, but this is a great chart. Uh, basically, Jacob... So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has another name, and his other name is Israel. And so in the scriptures, you'll read about the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, same person. And in fact, the children of Israel are literally the children of Israel. And so he has these 12 sons. You'll see them in order, in blue on this chart. And those become the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob become each themselves, these clans and tribes become the nation of Israel. 
So that's where the name comes from. That's where the 12 tribes come from. It literally is a specific people group. Well, this is happening around 1800 BC at this point. And so I'm just going to leave this map up. It's the same one that you have. And we're just going to talk through a little history here. What happens? So at this point, they know that they serve the one true God. They know that their grandfather, their uh, great-grandfather Abraham has been faithful to God and that they're also called to be faithful to the one true God, not the many gods of the nations around them. And so they are trying to live faithfully before God. So on this chart, if you remember, Ishmael goes into this area, and so you have the 12 tribes of Arabia. And so Ishmael and his descendants are just going to stay here for 2,500 years, and we'll leave them there. In uh, Jacob's time, they end up going to Egypt. This is where the book of Exodus picks up, after the book of Genesis. And this is about 1800 BC. And just as God has promised, they become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up a deliverer. This is the defining story. By the way, Exodus is the defining story of the Jewish people. It is when they go from being 12 tribes and a really big extended family to becoming a nation. They go from 70-some people when they go to Egypt in 1800 B.C. to millions when they leave in 1400 B.C. with Moses. So that story of the Exodus was formative. They become a nation, but they also gain their identity. Moses brings them out of Egypt. They go down to Mount Sinai. So they travel down here, and they get the Ten Commandments. Ewell Brenner sends them away. Charlton Heston takes them down to Mount Sinai, get the Ten Commandments. But what really happens there is more than the Ten Commandments, they get the Torah. First five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah. They get the law of Moses. They get a specific set of 613 commandments from God that is going to set them apart from all the other nations. So now you have them as a people group. They're a great, great number of people, like God said. He's taking them to that land he was going to promise, but he's making them into a chosen people, and the method he did was to have this covenant. This is the holy scriptures of the Jews, is your Old Testament, and the core of that is the Torah, first five books of the Bible, and it contains the law of Moses, the contract, if you will, or the covenant that God made with this group of people so that they would stand out. So that's what happened to uh, them, they get back into the promised land. And so that's the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, about anywhere between 1400 and 1000 BC, they occupy the nation of Israel. I'm going to call it the nation of Israel. It was called Canaan then, but it's what you and I know as the modern nation of Israel. So they came into that land and they begin to have their history, trying to live out faithfully this command, this covenant with Moses. Well, along the way, they have all kinds of adventures. They have some successes. They have some failures. King David, who would be in the line of Christ in 1000 B.C., uh, brought them to their pinnacle. David and his son Solomon. It was the golden age where they honored God, built the temple, built this beautiful temple in Jerusalem that, in which God would dwell and they would offer their sacrifices. Well, that temple was around until 586 B.C., so about 400 years when they were conquered by the Babylonians. Think Iraqis today, but they were Babylonian Empire, and they conquered them, and they destroyed that temple. And the people of Israel, the Jews, by all accounts, should have disappeared from the pages of history. They were carted off into exile, into modern-day Iraq. They should have just given up. They should have intermarried. They should have literally disappeared. It's happened to countless other people groups throughout history. But they didn't. They had this relationship with their one true God, and they had this covenant. And so God said, I will bring you back. And sure enough, he did. Seventy years later, he brought them back by the hand of the Persian Empire. Persians said, I don't have any beef with you guys. You can go back. Israel. And you'll read about this through your Old Testament. There's stories of them going back and rebuilding Jerusalem, uh, rediscovering the covenant in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so they have this long history of exile and difficulty, but they hold to their faith. 
So they came back in 586, they kind of refurbished the temple a little bit. It wasn't, wasn't a tourist destination, wasn't all that nice anymore, but they began to faithfully continue to worship God. The Greeks came along, Alexander the Great and his successors, and they tried to completely eradicate Judaism, but they couldn't do it. As many people as they killed, as much as they made it against the law to circumcise your children or own an Old Testament, own a Bible, they still couldn't stamp it out. Along came the Romans. The Romans ruled with a little bit of religious tolerance, and so the Jews did pretty well under them. And it's that time of peace, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the Roman security into which Jesus Christ is born. That will be next week's topic. I want to talk to you about the origins of Christianity. I mean, I realize that's our faith, or at least for most of us who are here, but kind of how we got here and the different branches is a very interesting story. And we'll talk about some of the different denominations. But let me continue with the Jews. After Christ born, crucified, raised, and Christianity begins to explode into the world, the Jews are still there in Palestine. They're still there in Israel, in the, what we call the nation of Israel. And they were really agitating about that Roman rule. And so, in 66 AD, now we're on the other side of the birth of Christ, they rebel against the Romans, think they can throw off the Roman rule, and at first they do. It's, it's like, hey, I can't believe it. We just beat the Romans. Well, until the reinforcements show up. So in 70 AD, big moment for the Jewish nation, the Romans come in and destroyed the temple. The only thing that's left is what is there today, this flat temple mount with a retaining, one of the retaining walls left. That's called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. It's one of the retaining walls to the Temple Mount. The temple, gone, completely gone, never been rebuilt since 70 AD. There's not been a Jewish temple. So the Romans destroyed it. Jews didn't quite get the message. In 132 AD, just 62 years later, they rebelled again. They thought they had the Messiah. They thought the Messiah had come, and they thought he was going to be able to militarily defeat the Romans. Turns out they'd missed the Messiah. This guy wasn't the Messiah, and now this time Hadrian, the emperor at that time, came and said, I've had about enough of you guys. In fact, I already destroyed your temple, but now you aren't even allowed to live in Jerusalem. Jews were not allowed to even come within sight of Jerusalem. They built a new city there, gave it a new name, and dispersed the Jews throughout the world. That's where Jews have been all this time. They have been dispersed throughout the world without a homeland, without Israel being their nation state. They have not been a nation state. They haven't been a people in a particular piece of land and said, this is our country since 70 AD. And so all the way up until the modern era. I'm going to pause for a second and let you know that there was a lot going on in Judaism through all those centuries between then, 70 AD, and now. It was thriving in little pockets throughout Europe. You had Russian Jews and Lithuanian Jews and Polish Jews, and you had little communities of Jews everywhere. And I'm going to pause here for a second and just kind of tell you some of the things that, that they worked on. They refined their beliefs. They couldn't do sacrifices anymore because the temple was gone, but they could try to define what are the essential beliefs of Judaism. So let me pause and give you an insight into that because this really got codified in the Middle Ages. So first, always get this question, thought this would be a good time to talk about it. The Jews have a covenant with 613 rules. That's for Jewish people and their special covenant with God. But what about you and me and the Gentiles? What do they think we're supposed to do? Well, they actually think all of humanity is required to live by the covenant God made with Noah. It's called the Noahide covenant. Remember, Noah is before Abraham, and after the flood, God said, listen, Noah, repopulate the earth, but I'd like you to do these, according to Jewish tradition, these are the seven things God told Noah, that you should be just, you should do justice, you should refrain from blasphemy, of God's name from idolatry, worshiping any... God expects us to worship God, not other idols. Uh, refrain from sexual immorality, murder, robbery, and do not eat meat with uh, blood in it. 
as a sacrificial thing that we don't do anymore, but people throughout history did. These are the seven rules that all people, according to Jewish thinking, are required to obey. And that makes us at least in a proper relationship with God. Now, the Jews have the 613 commandments. And in the Middle Ages was one of the great sages. There have been some really brilliant rabbis and sages. This guy's name is Moses Maimonides. He's called the Ramban, R-A-M-B-A-M. It's an acronym of his name. But he lived, as you can see, basically in the 12th century, in the Middle Ages. Think crusades going on. Think world events at that time. Christians, Muslims fighting it out. Well, Maimonides codified the essential Jewish beliefs into these 13, believing in God, believing in uh, God's absolute unity, that there is one God and one God alone. Remember the fundamental confession of the Jewish faith? There's a fundamental confession of Islam, fundamental confession of Christianity, but the fundamental confession of the Jewish faith is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the Shema because it's the first word in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the unity of God, there's only one true God. Uh, the belief in God's uh, spiritual being, the uh, belief in God that he's eternal, the imperative to worship God and God alone, that God has communicated through man, through revelation, through prophecy, the belief that Moses was their teacher and the revelation to Moses, the Torah, the law of Moses, is the authentic revelation of God to the Jews through Moses. The uh, divine origin of the Torah, in other words, the Old Testament was divinely given, not written by people, what people thought, that you can't change the Torah, that God's omniscient and that he is provident, meaning he's sovereign, he's in charge of things, he's controlling things. The idea of divine reward and retribution, in other words, God will judge us, he will judge the world. The belief that there will be a Messiah coming or a messianic age. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then the belief in the resurrection of the dead, that this is not all there is. You have eternal life. Those are, according to Maimonides, and still broadly and widely accepted, kind of the core major beliefs of Judaism. Okay? Let me pause there for a question, because I'm going to bring them from now, from the Middle Ages and all these centuries of Jewish pockets around the world, holding to their core beliefs, obeying as many of the laws of Moses as they can in that time without the temple. Then I'm going to bring it right up to modern day, but this is a good time to pause and see if you have any questions. How much time passed between Joseph and Moses, and how did their population grow from 70 to millions? I didn't hear the last part, I'm sorry. How did the population grow from 70 to millions? Yeah, well, as far as how that population grew... That's kind of a basic, basic thing. I'm joking. That's a good question. Once you see how long it is, you'll kind of get this. Okay, so think Joseph. I'm going to give you traditional dates. Scholars argue about these dates a lot, but it's not the point of my lesson. That's fascinating, but it's not the point of this lesson. So traditional dates. Think Joseph in Egypt. Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, the one they kicked out, ends up ruling in Egypt. Brothers get there, go, uh-oh, we thought you were dead. He goes, I know, you tried to kill me. But anyway, so they kiss, they make up. And so Joseph, think about 1800 B.C. Think Moses, about 1400 B.C. So in that 400 years, they prospered in Egypt. I mean, they were slaves, but they were still having a lot of babies. They, and they were working hard, had a lot of food. They weren't treated well, but they did indeed in other words, what God told Abraham was going to happen, happened. They literally became a great nation of people, a lot of people. What's your opinion on why the Jews as a whole did not accept Christ as the Messiah? Good question. Why did the Jews not as a whole accept Christ as the Messiah? I'll give you the short version of that, and then if we have time at the end, I'll tell you how Jews today think of Jesus. Uh, generally not kindly. But basically, why did they miss it? I'm going to give you a really short version fundamentally, as they read the scriptures, they had two ideas about the Messiah. And there are two interesting ideas. And as usual, God does things in just really upside-down ways. He's just brilliant. But first, you have the conquering king. You have visions, messianic prophecies about the Messiah will come and be a king. 
He'll sit on the throne of David's kingdom forever. He'll be a king. So they thought, conquer, defeat the Romans, be like David, defeat all our enemies, and he will rule. So they had this idea of a Messiah then would be a king, he'd be a warrior, and he would lead them to economic and political prominence in the world. Still that way, still thought of as that way. Second image you get in the Old Testament about the Messiah is the suffering servant model. Think Joseph, a kind of a messianic figure of, think Isaiah chapter 53. He was, by his stripes we are healed. He was afflicted for us. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. In other words, you see this idea of the Messiah confusingly to them as a suffering servant in some way. And so they thought, well, maybe there are going to be two messiahs. But they really couldn't reconcile that. At the time of Jesus, they're being oppressed, had been oppressed by the Greeks, being oppressed by the Romans, and they really had it in their mind that a messiah must be a military leader. Think about in 132 AD, there arose a guy named uh, Bar Kokhba, and he said, I'm the messiah, I'm going to lead your armies. And the great rabbi Akiva, really great rabbi, said, you know what? He gets my stamp of approval. I think that's the Messiah. And so they had this big uprising. They actually had a lot of people start uprising saying they were the Messiah. None of them succeeded. So that's what they were looking for. So in a nutshell, I would say that they were looking for the wrong thing. So what does God do, though? This is just fascinating. Think about how awesome God is. So Jesus Christ is indeed the conquering king. He defeated Satan. He overcame sin. He freed us eternally. He will rule over everything forever. And at the same time, he was the suffering servant. And so you see God putting both those together. But I think that was something that they could not see, did not see in the moment. Although many Jews became Christians, but in general, I think they did not see that. That was not what they were looking for. Why are the O's missing on that? Hey, that's a fair question. That's better than why are your statistics seven years old, okay? Just kidding. Uh, if this came from an Orthodox Jewish website, and Orthodox Jews do not, first of all, Jews historically didn't say the name of God. When you're reading along in the Old Testament in Hebrew, which you probably do routinely, and you get to the name of God, which is Y-H-W-H, basically Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. Jews would say Adonai, which is Lord. They would not say the name of God. In fact, they wouldn't say the name of God so long, nobody actually knows how that word's pronounced. We say Yahweh, but I, we don't know that's how that is pronounced because they didn't pronounce it. They pronounced Adonai. And so even today, and in fact, today, most Orthodox uh, texts that I read anyway, they don't even use Lord. They say Hashem. Hashem means the name. Hashem did this. Hashem did that. The name did this. The name did that. And so there's this great reverence for the name of God, and it's not something you're supposed to say. So even in writing, you'll, you'll see Lord as L-R-D, and you'll see God as G-D. And so it's a, it's a sign of extreme reverence. But you'll see that in most Orthodox sources. But that's actually a, that's an interesting little question. Why did the Jews quit doing sacrifices, and why do they not do them today? Great. Simple answer on that. Why did they quit doing sacrifices? Why do they not do them today? There's no temple at which to do the sacrifices. So from 70 AD on, there was no temple. It's destroyed, and there is no temple today. And so Jews were told to do sacrifices at the temple, not in their backyard. And so that is why they didn't and they don't today. Good, those are great questions. Well, let me bring you up and catch us up to modern times. I want to fast forward from the Middle Ages to the modern era. So World War II, I'm skipping a lot of interesting history, but in the interest of time, let's go to World War II. You all know what happened in World War II. Unconscionable. The Nazis uh, regime uh, exterminated six million Jews. And remember, how many Jews are they in the world today? 14 million. I mean, you kill 6 million Jews, what were they trying to do? Completely eradicate the Jews. Were they the first to try it? They absolutely were not the first to try it. But it was horrific. And so after World War II, when people discover, oh my goodness, 
look what happened here. There was a great, I'm going to really oversimplify this, but there was a great outpouring of sympathy for the Jews. And the Jews had a Zionist movement, lot to the Zionist movement. But basically, Jews were saying, we want our homeland back. I mean, ever since 70 AD, we've been scattered all around the world. And Israel, by the way, in case you don't know, I've got a deed right here, right? It's called Genesis chapter 12. And so we, that is our land. God gave us that land. We would like our homeland back. Long story, really short version. British get behind this. U.S. gets behind it. Very close call, by the way. That is interesting politics in that time. But Truman says, nope, we're doing it, against the advice of his advisors. And so the U.N., in 1947, says there's going to be a partition state, and I'm just going to call it Israel, in the land of Israel, and there's going to be a Palestinian area and a Jewish area. And so the Jews said, we'll do it. We, we will we'll do it. We'll get a part of the land of Israel for ours, and the Palestinians can have the other part. Arabs said no. 1948, May 14th, Jews said, well, you can say no if you want, but we're coming here. And so some Jews, not a ton, moved there, and immediately the next day, this is a map, this is a busy little map, but what I really want you to know is five Arab nations attack them the next day, decide to completely obliterate them against every odds. I mean, I want you to get the sense that the fact that the Jews are still here is so historically improbable it, it isn't even funny. It defies imagination. It's almost as though the hand of God were involved in this, as indeed it was. But you get five nations trying to wipe out the Jews. And this is one of the things when we do our Israel trips that's really touching when you go to these places and we talk about these battles and we go to the places, some of the places where they do the battle. We do a lot about Jesus, where Jesus walked, but we also talk about this. Anyway, short version of the story, they win. Unbelievable. But they win, and they get their little area. They don't have a ton of area at this time. Basically, Israel kind of looks like this. I mean, it's, it's just not very big at that point. But from 1948 until 1967, they kind of move along that way. They basically have the Syrians up here in the Go called the Golan Heights. They got the Egyptians down here, the Jordanians have all this area. In fact, the Jordanians have half, uh, they rule half of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is literally cut in two, and Jordanians rule this half, Jews have that half. Very uneasy time. It's like, we haven't forgotten that you tried to invade us, and they go, trust me, we'll be back. And so, 1967, I'm going to fast forward. So this, uh, Israel calls this their war of independence. Uh, Arab nations don't acknowledge them as a state. So they don't call it anything except you're still there and we haven't been able to kick you out yet. So let's go fast forward 20 years later, 1967. This is a little bit busier map. But basically, you have Israel there and they find out that there's going to be another attack. And so Israel preemptively attacks Egypt and Syria. It's called the Six-Day War because they, they attacked a couple of days before their enemies were going to attack them. They caught the Syrian and Egyptian air forces on the ground. They destroyed them. They start moving. They capture. Remember, they had just a little bit of territory. They capture what's called the West Bank. It's called the West Bank because that's the Jordan River and this is the west side. They capture that. They captured the Golan Heights from Syria. They captured the entire Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. In fact, their armies were, could easily have gone into Cairo and into Damascus and conquered those nations. But uh, Moshe Dayan, who's in charge at this time, says, no, we're not in this for conquest. It sounds like I'm giving you a Jewish apologetic, but when you read their... Um, Memoirs. This is really interesting. They were not trying to conquer those nations. They wanted security. So they kept this. After 1967, they had all those little brown areas as well. That's why today, by the way, when you look at a map, an Arab map of the world, and even in the Western world, the West Bank and the Golan Heights are still referred to as occupied territory. Because many people in the world, a lot of people in the world, a lot of people in the UN, think Israel was the aggressor in this war, and they took the West Bank, they took the Golan Heights, and they will not give them back, and they are occupying them. And so that's 
from 1967 is why they keep passing these resolutions against Israel, like get out of this occupied territory. So that's the view of why that happens. So 1967, this is the way it looks. Fast forward just a few years. Anwar Sadat becomes the leader in Egypt, brilliant leader. Uh, Arab, these are Arab Muslim countries. These are all Muslim countries. What he did in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, Yom Kippur, holiest day of the year for the Jews. Everybody's off work. The Egyptians and the Syrians, I'm getting too long-winded about this, but this is fascinating. The Egyptians and the Syrians time a perfect sneak attack, an attack on Yom Kippur at exactly the same time, catch Israel totally underprepared because the Arab nations had been humiliated in the 1967 Six-Day War. And they, Sadat said, we can't bargain from this kind of a, a status. And so they have a sneak attack, and boy, it does not look good for Israel. I mean, they look like they're going to lose. This is, think, uh, Kissinger and, uh, how can you forget, Nixon. Kissinger and Nixon... <laughs> you know, are dealing with this in 1973 and trying to give them some aid. The Russians are in there helping the Syrians. Russians are supplying the Arabs. Very tense time for us. But long story short, Israel wins. But Arab dignity is restored. And so a few years later, 1979, after the Shom Kippur War, the Camp David peace accords happen. And so peace is signed between Israel and Egypt, and Israel gives this back to Egypt. So on a map today, this is Egyptian, the Sinai Peninsula. They do not give the West Bank back, and they do not give the Golan Heights back. When you go to Israel, you go up near the Golan Heights, you'll see why. They're called Heights because they're high ground. Israeli settlers farming down here used to get picked off routinely by snipers, and they would just lob artillery in. It is strategically important to them. They kept that high ground called the Golan Heights. Also, the Syrians tried to kill all of the Jews by blocking off the river. If you think about it, all their fresh water comes from the Jordan River. Well, it starts up here in the Golan Heights. And so they just tried to cut off their fresh water and let them all die. And so for various reasons, again, I'm not giving you an apologetic, but I'm going to tell you why. They didn't give the Golan Heights back. They didn't give the West Bank back because they wanted Jerusalem to control Jerusalem. And so today, what you see is, oh, by the way, this is the neighborhood. Everybody on here is part of the Arab League. They're all Muslim nations. And in fact, on this map, you notice where it says Palestine? You notice there's no Israel on this map? Because Israel is considered by the Arab nations the nation of Palestine. They don't consider the nation of Israel to be legitimate. So this is the neighborhood in which they live. Surrounded 14... Basically, in Israel, there are 8.5 million people, 6 million of them are Jews, surrounded by 440 million Muslims. So this is the Jewish neighborhood. I tell you that because I want to draw a couple of interesting conclusions from it in a few minutes. So this is the modern state of Israel. And I'm going to whip through a couple of things because people always have questions about the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So this is Israel today. This is the West Bank right here, this area. And it is Palestinians this is the Gaza Strip, was not given back to Israel, but there's a little area around the town of Gaza that is also Israeli-controlled, but not primarily Jewish. And I want to tell you about those two areas, because people always have a lot of questions. So, the nation of Israel itself, not the West Bank, not the Gaza Strip, about 8.5 million people, about 6 million of them are Jews, and the other 2.5 million largely Arabs. So let's go into these areas. This is the West Bank. And I just want to give you a couple of uh, stats about, uh, about the West Bank. There are 2.6 million people in this area, in the West Bank. 2.1 million of them are Arabs. 75% of that 2.6 million are Muslims. About 8% are Christian. Well, this is interesting, by the way, because uh, you notice in there... Uh, you get Bethlehem is in the West Bank. And so when you go to Bethlehem, it's mostly Arab, it's mostly Muslim, but there are some Arab by uh, ethnicity, they're Arabs, but they're Christians. And so when we go, we try to support the Arab 
Christian businesses there because they are much a minority. Now, that's an interesting thing. Think about this. If you are an Arab Christian living in the West Bank around Arab Muslims and Jews, so you're Arab, so you have a long-standing animosity with Jewish people, but you're Christian, so you have a long-standing animosity with Muslims. I mean, just historically speaking. So that small Arab Christian contingent is one that you'll see on the news some, and it's one that we need to think about and pray about. So West Bank, 2.6 million people, 2.1 million of them are uh, Arabs. There are a few Jews living in the West Bank, and believe me, it's a source of contention, isn't it? The settlements, the Jewish settlements in this area are a source of political tension for Netanyahu and really every administration over there. So 75% Muslim in that area. Gaza Strip, 1.8 million people crammed into the Gaza Strip. It is controlled by Hamas. And so of that 1.8 million people, 99.8% of them are Sunni Muslims. 0.2% of them, I mean almost none, are Christians. So in the Gaza Strip, you have a lot of people in a small area and they're almost all Sunni Muslims, and there is, as obviously Hamas is a terrorist organization. And so Israel is living with these two areas within their country. So that is kind of the modern state of Israel and kind of their modern situation. So the Muslims in the West Bank and the Muslims in Gaza are Sunni Muslims. From our lesson, you'll know the significance of that. And Hamas is controlling the Gaza Strip. The West Bank, is ruled differently. The Arabs in many places in the West Bank govern themselves. Israel would like, according to his stated Israeli government policy, they would like to have security control of that area, but they would like self-governance there. And when you go through the West Bank, you can see places that uh, Arabs are indeed governing themselves. You'll see the mosques, etc., in that area. So let me pause and see if you have any questions about that. Back to the modern state of Israel. What is the root of the fighting between the Palestinians and the Israelis today? Well, there's the, the animosity and the tension between Palestinians. That word is a politically charged word. So let me break it down just a little bit. When we say Palestinians, that word didn't really exist. It comes from the name Palestine. But what it implies is these are the native people in this area before the Jews came in in 1948. And so politically speaking, by calling them Palestinians, you're saying these are the rightful inhabitants of this land. Obviously, if you're Arab, that's your point of view. If you're Jewish, that is not your point of view. There wasn't a Palestinian state there in 1948. There was not a nation there, but there were some people who were living there. And so they are today called Palestinians, but they are basically Arab people from a variety of places, and they did not have a nation. So what is the animosity between them? Palestinian people, oh, there's a lot of reasons, because I left out, I just told you the three big wars. I didn't tell you about the intifadas and all kinds of things, and there's fault on both sides. I'm not trying to make a moral judgment here, but there's a lot of reason for tension both ways. But basically, the people that live in the West Bank, the Palestinians, don't think the Jews should be there. They thought that was a a settlement imposed upon them by the United Nations, specifically by Britain and America, by the West, and they do not accept it. They do not recognize Israel's right to exist. In fact, none of those states around there, or nations around there, recognize Israel's right to exist. So they have heartburn on that level, and then there have been all kinds of tension. There's a wall around the West Bank, and when Israel wants to, they can cut off. Most of the people in the West Bank work in Israel. And so when they shut down that access, it causes economic hardship in the West Bank. And so there's a lot of reasons for tension there, even beyond the religious reasons and beyond the ethnic reasons, there are also economic and just historical reasons. So there's a lot of reasons for tension there. It's a good question. Um, is Lebanon an ally of Israel? Lebanon is definitely not an ally of Israel. Actually, Nobody over there is an ally of Israel. I'll just settle that question. 
Nobody over there is an ally of Israel. Israel may have like one ally in the world, and we may be it, but I'm exaggerating a little bit. Nobody there is an ally. Lebanon has, Lebanon's interesting in that Lebanon has been one of those failed states. I mean, if you think about 30, 40 years ago, Lebanon was unrulable, and you had a lot of terrorist activity out of there. Lebanon's doing better now, but Lebanon, uh, it still has a lot of factions, but it is not an ally uh, of uh, Israel. In fact, Israel's invaded Lebanon a couple of times to put a stop to rockets being fired into Israel and then backed out of it. So a lot of, lot of international tension there. So no allies for Israel around that area. On the map before this one, mm-hmm. the Gaza Strip had a line around it that said 1950. Said what? I'm sorry. It says 1950 armistice line. What is that from? There have been all kinds of, uh, there, there were more battles than what I told you about. In other words, big old battle in 1948. There was another battle in 1950 that was settled with an armistice. In other words, I just went from 1948 to 1967. There are all kinds of smaller things that happened in there, and that's what that's from. I just gave you the big ones. Do you want to go back and talk about Jewish practices today? Now? Yes, let's talk about Jewish practices today. Uh, Thank you. That's exactly what I was going to (laughs) do. If the Jews can no longer make sacrifices, how do they atone for their sins? Great question. And uh, how do Jews atone for their sins? Let me come back to that after I talk to you about this because not all Jews are created equal. In other words, like Islam, we talked about the Sunnis and the Shiites, and even within the Sunnis and the Shiites, we talked about the Wahhabis and different sects, if you will. Next time, I want to talk to you about all kinds of interesting branches and family trees in Christianity. Well, Judaism has a lot of them, but I'm going to give you the three major branches of Judaism. The first is Orthodox Judaism, and there are all kinds of flavors of Orthodox, but I'm going to lump them all together. Orthodox Jews believe that the written and oral law, not just what's written in the, in the Old Testament, but the oral law. That's, remember, what the Pharisees, all those extra rules the Pharisees had that Jesus kept getting crosswise with. Jesus wasn't disobeying anything in the written law, in the Old Testament. He was disobeying, he really was disobeying some of their oral laws. Well, they thought that all stuff was all inspired. They thought God gave Moses a written book and he told him some stuff and said, just pass it on. Anyway, so they believe that's all divinely inspired and should be observed. And so Orthodox Jews are often called observant Jews. And they observe every one of those 613 commandments that are possible to observe. In other words, you cannot observe the sacrifice without a temple, but they observe all of the others. Second, conservative Judaism. Conservative Jews follow traditional Jewish laws and customs. For example, Shabbat or the Sabbath, they will observe the Sabbath. So from Sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. Saturday is the Sabbath, the seventh day. They don't work. They don't travel. In other words, they're kind of orthodox about the Sabbath, for example. Kashrut is dietary laws. No uh, cheeseburgers, no pulled pork sandwiches. In other words, they follow the kosher dietary laws. So they don't follow everything. They're conservative Jews. They are open to modern influences. In other words, they don't dress like the Orthodox typically dress. They don't do everything like the Orthodox do. They're more open. You'll see people functioning in society, but they're observant about some of those traditional Jewish laws and customs. Then Reform Jews, also called liberal Jews or progressive Jews, they accept the moral principles, but not any of the ritual laws. They see Judaism as an evolving and they embrace modern cultural. So for example, I'm not telling you every Reformed congregation is this way, but Reformed Judaism tends to be egalitarian. The Reformed congregation here has a female rabbi. Wouldn't happen in an Orthodox, but does in Reformed Judaism. Uh, Some Reformed congregations, um, uh, well, I don't wanna get into that, but basically, some Reformed congregations, you don't necessarily have to believe in God to be a Reformed Jew. There's a wide variety. So those are kind of the three main branches of Judaism. So back to the uh, question, which was? How do they atone for their sins today without sacrifices? 
It depends on whether you think you've sinned. So, for example, Orthodox Jews, the high holy days, big deal. Starting tonight with Rosh Hashanah, ending on the 10th day with Yom Kippur, they're going to fast. They are going to confess their sins. They are going to, they can't do the sacrifice you used to do on Yom Kippur, but they are going to fast and atone for their sins and ask God for forgiveness for their sins. Conservative Jews follow that even more so. Reformed Jews will do something, but they don't have the same idea of sin. In other words, they're, they're just more liberal in their thinking, and so they don't really think of sin in that way. They're just trying to live a moral kind of right life as they understand it and as their Jewish tradition basically tells them to be just. So I'm not trying to make any, uh, any value judgments on that. I just want you to know that they, they don't think of sin the same way. But basically, they do it through the intentionality of their heart as opposed to the sacrificial system. Can you talk a little bit about Messianic Jews? Messianic Jews is kind of a misnomer in the sense that everybody I'm talking to you about is Jewish. They don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, the best that Jews today think about Jesus, the best is that he was a Jewish reformer who failed. The worst is he was a demon, he was a charlatan. I mean, they, they, a lot of bad, nasty stuff said about Jesus historically because they don't accept him as the Messiah. So everybody I'm talking to you about here is Jewish. To say someone is a Messianic Jew means that they were Jewish, they still see themselves as ethnically Jewish, but they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Messianic Jews are Christians. So, for example, the people that bought our old church building in Belle Isle here is a Messianic Jewish congregation. They are Christian, but they all happen to be Jewish ethnicity, and they will still do some Jewish things. They're not going to sacrifice for sin. They're not going to, they don't believe that you need to atone. They don't believe you need to follow 613 rules in the law of Moses. They believe in Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace through faith. But they still participate in a lot of their cultural things of Jew. In other words, they're Jewish people ethnically and socially, but they accept that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's a great question. A Messianic Jew is a Christian, but they come from that Jewish background. Why don't they just rebuild the temple? Yes, why don't they just rebuild the temple? That will be the beginning of World War III. <laughs> and I'm not joking about that. Okay, so on the Temple Mount, I'll make this really quick. On the Temple Mount, there are two mosques. And today, well, that's not true today, but a couple of months ago, the, there was a, a Muslim organization called the WAC, but basically they controlled the Temple Mount. Israel controlled the security to the Temple Mount, but they let the Muslims control the Temple Mount. They got mosques up there, let people go up there. You remember not long ago, there were those two Israeli soldiers that were killed. They put in the metal detectors so that when Muslims went up there to pray, they had to go through metal detectors because two of the soldiers guarding the Temple Mount, Israeli soldiers, had been killed. So today, Israel is controlling more of the Temple Mount, and it was very tense. I mean, you saw riots over there, etc. So the day that someone tears down those mosques and start to rebuild that temple, Muslims around the world would be united, and we would probably have World War III. So are there Jews who want to rebuild the temple? Absolutely. Are there Jews who are actually even planning to rebuild the temple? Yes. Are there Jews who are looking for a red heifer so you can do the purification rites, so you can rebuild the temple? Absolutely. When you read about all that esoteric stuff that's probably actually part of a small group of people. Israel is ruled by Jews who are not Orthodox Jews. I mean, they're a big political component. In fact, I've got to tell you this, of the 8 million people in Israel, about 10% of them are Orthodox Jews and they're growing rapidly. You know why? Same reason as back in Egypt, have a lot of kids. So they are growing very rapidly and they have a lot of political clout, but they don't rule. They're kind of a swing contingency and they've parlayed that into political power. So, for example, Orthodox Jews are not required to serve in the military, which every Israeli uh, boy and girl, Jewish, not Arabs. The Arab people are not required either. But of those six million Jews, unless you're Orthodox, if when you're 18 years old, boy or girl, you're going to go in the military. Uh, they believe it's an important thing for them, a lot of reasons for it, but not Orthodox Jews. 
So Orthodox Jews are interested in that, others not. They want a peaceful Jewish state. They believe that would cause a war, and so do I. Hindsight being 2020, why do you think there are not more Messianic Jews today? Jews who see Christianity from a 2020 perspective at this point, instead of being lost in the moment. Yeah, I don't know how many Messianic Jews there are today. In other words, how many people of Jewish origin, ethnicity, are Christians. Uh, but there are only 14 million Jews in the world. So, good question, and I'm not sure, I don't know that I have a good answer for that as to why more Jews don't see that. Now, there are Christian end times uh, prophecies that these Jews will indeed accept Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation. Another story for another time. Do you have a book on um, Israel's history that you would recommend? A book on Israel's history, there are a lot of them. I'll tell you one that's pretty readable. A guy, and I'm, I'm not saying there aren't other good ones, but I like Paul Johnson's book called The History of the Jews. He's a good writer. He does, does a pretty good job. If you like fiction better than nonfiction, James Mishner wrote a novel called The Source, big old thick novel, keep you happy for several days. It is totally a novel. It's got some biases, but it's kind of an interesting, kind of a history of the Jews as well. But I'd recommend those two. There are several good ones out there, but those are a couple. Well, let me go ahead and uh, finish this because I do want to talk to you about uh, a couple of other points I'd like to make. Orthodox Jews, you will notice them because of some of their basic beliefs. All Jews believe well, I shouldn't say that. Reformed Jews don't all believe this. But fundamental confession is there is one true God. They believe the Old Testament is inspired at least in some way. Some Reformed Jews would look at it as merely the record of the history, the rich tradition of Jews. So in other words, you get a wide variety of how religious Jews are. You get a wide variety of how religious Christians are. We'll talk about that next time. But basically, Orthodox Jews will wear like a, a prayer shawl. You've seen those shawls that uh, Orthodox men wear? Those prayer shawls, it's called a talit, and they'll wear that. On the end of it are called tzitzit, they're tassels, and they'll wear those. In fact, a lot of Orthodox men wear one underneath their shirt, and you'll see the tassels hanging out. They're Orthodox or observant Jews, and they're wearing the prayer shawl and the tassel. Once or twice a day, depending on your sect of Orthodox Jews, they will put on tefillin. Tefillin is binding around your left hand, a little box with some scriptures in it, and binding around your forehead, a little box. This is from Deuteronomy. And so they do that. Different sects wrap it differently, do things differently, but they will don the tefillin, trying to keep that commandment. Uh, conservative Jews, you won't see them doing that typically, but you may see them wearing a kippah, the little yarmulke is a Yiddish word, but kippah is the Hebrew word for, I call it, translated as cover my bald spot. But basically, that little kippah they'll wear, that's a sign of observance, covering your head to God. Reformed Jews, you don't typically see any visible sign uh, for Reformed Jews. They don't typically observe any of those things specifically. Uh, in our town, Laura wanted me to mention this to you, in Oklahoma City, not a great big Jewish population, but we have a Reformed Jewish uh, congregation here called the Temple. We have a conservative Jewish congregation here called the synagogue, and then we have, I believe, one Orthodox rabbi. It is a particular sect of Orthodox Judaism called the Kabad movement, and there is a small group of Orthodox Jews in Oklahoma City. So I thought that might be of interest to you, but there are representatives of each of these major branches in Oklahoma City. Well, we typically finish off with an in-the-news segment. Now that you know this about these branches, I want to show you something really explosive. This is the Western Wall. That's that retaining wall, holiest place in Judaism today because there's no temple up there. But if you look straight up from that wall, that's where they thought the temple was, on top of the Temple Mount. These are two uh, Haredi Jews or Orthodox Jews who are praying at the Wailing Wall at the Western Wall. But look at this. This is in the New York Times from uh, September 12th, so a few days ago. Israel's Supreme Court struck down the government arrangement allowing for ultra-Orthodox Jews to be exempt from military service, saying that was unconstitutional and discriminatory. There's a huge secular Jewish movement to really make Israel a lot less religious. This is a victory for that 
segment. They believe that the future of Israel is not in Orthodox Jews. Needless to say, Orthodox Jews think the future of Israel is what it's always been, and that is following God and following it in the way that they follow God. Anyway, so they just ruled recently, and this ruling is going to draw the battle lines over an issue that is roiling Israeli society. So when you see this in the news, and you are going to, they have one year to change this. So Netanyahu's like, oh, you're kidding me. You know, so trying to uh, reconcile this issue, the ultra-Orthodox Jews say, I don't care what you say, we're not serving. You know, we're going to be in yeshiva studying Torah. That's righteousness before God. We're not going to do it. And the secular Jews say, oh, yeah, well, then you're going to jail because that's unconstitutional. So as you watch this play out, and you will over the next year, you'll kind of see some of the tensions even inside Israel between some of these different groups. Well, I realize that was a pretty quick tour through Judaism, uh, but you hopefully know some of these things. But it's interesting just to see where they came from. Next time, I want to talk about Christianity. And then we're going to start putting it together, by the way. The Muslims, the Christians, the Jews, got some interesting stuff in the news right now about Buddhists and Muslims. I think I'll talk to you about that next time. But basically, I want to talk to you about Christianity. Christianity is the largest religion in the world, but here's an interesting question. Is Christianity having the largest impact in the world? And if not, why not? And what can we do about that? So that's what we'll talk about next time. Thank you, guys.